but we'll begin with uh, prayer and then singing the word of God set to music and then get into our verse by verse. This is an interesting chapter. It's gonna open us up to some unique things here in scripture. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, pause and thank you for this short time we can gather together and study your word. We pray your spirit will be with us. Help us to understand uh, the things that are presented. Forget the things, the things that are of man, of me, of our own will, and that we can just understand you by your spirit, by your word. Help those people who are struggling in faith. Help those people who don't know you yet, that they will. And if we can play a part, a role in that, in them coming to know you, then help us to play that part. Uh, in the meantime, help us to be humble and seek you in spirit and truth. We pray for this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. One. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They have together become undroppable. There is no one who does good, no, not one. As it is written, there is
Okay, so let's read through chapter five. Uh, it's 14 verses, it's not long, and then we'll come back and hit our verse-by-verse -verse study today. I think it's gonna be interesting to you what, uh, what is covered in here. Um, John says, and I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven, nor on earth, or excuse me, nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and read the book. 
neither to look thereon. And one of the elders said unto me, remember there's 24 elders around this one throne, weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and 20 elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song saying, thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of, thy, out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and hast made unto us our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders and a number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and that are in them heard I saying, blessed and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb forever and ever and the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that lives forever and ever. That's the full chapter. Last week we took the first verse and used it to explain the way the four main views describe the seven seals. We looked at the futurist view, the preterist view, the historicist view, and the idealist view, and how each of them explained the seven seals and how they're described in Revelation. As we move through chapters six through eight, we'll do that in more detail. But now at verse one, John wrote, and I saw in the hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. Verse two, which is, begins what our, we'll cover today. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? Where it says strong angel, uh, it's, this angel was asking a very important question, presumably to the universe, it, and it was asked of an angel that had power and strength. The Greek word translated strong here is kouros, and it means uh, in scripture forceful, even boisterous. So it can be related to the volume in your speech and the kuras is saying that this strong angel could have been a boisterous angel meaning he had the ability to project his voice uh the question being asked by the angel who is worthy to open the book that's in the right hand of the one that's sitting on the one throne that's the question right and we might wonder why one needed to be worthy to open this book, to break the seals, uh, to be able to read what was written there uh, thereon in the first place. And was it due to having to approach the one sitting on that throne, you had to be worthy or holy? Uh, or was breaking the seals open and reading what was in them so sacred that a person or the being had to be worthy to do it? Was it based on priestly authority? It probably was all of these things. The fact that the book was held in the right hand of him, as John puts it, that was on the throne and sealed in this manner seems to prove that this was not to be read, uh, read by any, just anybody. It wasn't to be read uh, at this time by anyone except the one who was, had the power to break the seals and then read the content. That is who it was for. And... So the angel was sent to ask out into the open, who is worthy to open the sealed scroll? 
and, and to read what is upon it. John adds something interesting in the next verse. It says in the King James, and no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. Now, this is a problem in the King James because the word man is not in the original manuscripts. It's not in the Greek. It, so really, all it says is who, and it says, and no one in heaven or in earth. It doesn't say man. So that was inserted somewhere by translators, and putting man in the translation changes the meaning to the extent that it modifies and limits it. You see, to say what man says the angel was only asking men. To remove men from the uh, passage, which it should be removed, is to ask who in heaven or what in heaven or nothing in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open it. You see, so there's a difference between none in heaven nor in earth or under the earth able to open the book versus no man in heaven on earth or under the earth was able to open the book. So the idea here is nothing anywhere, not just humans, not just a man, nothing anywhere was capable of opening this book and to read it. Uh, so when it comes to the heavenly inhabitants, you know, nothing in heaven, since man isn't included there, it seems to be saying there's no angel who is capable in heaven or no creature living under the throne of God with, with a face like a man and a body like a this or an eagle or any of that. None of those are worthy to open, but no one surrounding the, uh, the throne, none of the angels, none of the elders, none of the beasts were uh, worthy. And when it says, or on earth, apparently he's referring to all classes of humans and all classes of animals too, it seems to. And then he says, neither under the earth. And that seems to be talking about those who are dead or dispossessed of their bodies and are in Sheol at that time. Whatever it is, nobody anywhere was uh, capable of opening this book, whatever creations they were and wherever they were. So who is worthy to open the book? In some sense, it's akin the angel, that's powerful, it's kind of like the angel is a, a boxing promoter or a fighter promoter in a ring. And he says out to an audience, who here is uh, able to beat this champion? In other words, the question is by the angel, who in heaven, earth, or below the earth is able to open up this sealed book and read it? The challenge is thrown down there. Like, we have this man, Goliath, in the ring. Who in all the world can come on and take this on? Who is worthy to step in? And the person who would be worthy to step in and do that had to have become prepared to fight or worthy by virtue of having had victories, by having overcome something. So when they enter into the ring, they're able to take out the opponent. When they're able to take the scroll, they have the ability to overcome those seals and understand what is written in them. So I am not of the opinion that the angel was actually seeking or looking for someone worthy. I think this was all for John's benefit. The angel was saying, who is worthy? Maybe rhetorically. Where is the worthy one to open up this seal, right? And to show that none were worthy to open up among the inhabitants of heaven and earth to do what only Jesus could do. So who is worthy to open the book and loose the seals thereof? John replies, and none in heaven nor in earth nor under the earth was able to open the book and look thereon. Now we already know that both the 24 elders, they're around this one throne where the one person sits holding the one book in his right hand. And we know that the 24 elders were able to see the book. We know that John was able in vision to see the book. So to be able to see the book, to me, means they were able to see the hand, the right hand. John says it was a right, his right hand, and it refers to the being's right hand several times. So to me, both John and the 24 elders were able to see, look at the scroll, uh, because they represented the church, the 24 elders, and John looked with anticipation, the church looked with anticipation to what was in those scrolls to tell us what's gonna happen at the end. So they were anxious to see what was going to come forth. So it wasn't like nobody was aware that there were things to come. The men in the church that represented by the 24 elders, they knew something was coming, 
but the only one worthy to actually unseal it and look at the specifics of what was coming is the one who's gonna stand up now in the middle. And he could both break the seals and look upon what they contained because they had to do with him. They had to do with his second advent. It had to do with him wrapping up everything for that age and returning to the earth. So the angel makes this loud query and John then writes something really intriguing in verse four. He says, after hearing the angel say that and then saying there's no one in heaven and earth or under the earth that could do it. Now put on your thinking caps. He says, and I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. Now think about this. John, going back to chapter four, has seen one throne. He's seen one being on that throne who he just refers to as him, him, him. He never says it's God the Father. He never says it's Jesus Christ. He just says, I see the throne and him on it, him on it. And him on it with his right hand takes the book. So we know that. John has seen the one throne, the one on it. This one has the right hand in his scroll. So he has a body. Scripture says that God is not a man. Scripture says God is a spirit. Scripture says God is a consuming fire. This is not that form of God sitting on the throne. This is the form of God that has the body. We say this because John is actually claiming to see a scroll in the right hand, so it has to be anthropomorphic. He doesn't say something like a hand, he says the hand. And because God is spirit, Jesus, and this is before his second advent, has a resurrected body, it has to be Jesus on that throne in my estimation. This is important clarification as we study it. Because if I'm right about this, and Jesus is the only him, the only being on that one throne, surrounded by the 24 elders, the beasts under it, and not the Father, uh, but Jesus representing the one God fully, when the angel asks who's worthy to open the book and loose the seals thereof, how come Jesus doesn't make the reply sitting there on the throne? How come the one sitting on the throne who must be Christ, he has all the anthropomorphic parts, and how come he doesn't say, I will, I'll open my own book? The one on the throne is Jesus who is offering the book to be opened. He doesn't open the book himself. John must have, at this point, somehow felt ashamed in his vision for not being that someone who could open the book. If Christ is on the throne holding the book and the angel says, who is worthy to open this book? John must have believed, well, it's not talking about Christ, so there must be a being, a man, a creation that is supposed to be worthy to open it, and there isn't one, and now I feel bad. And so John begins to weep. That gives me reason why John would be weeping here. And John tells us he wept because there was no man found to open the book. Jesus is on the throne, and he must have automatically thought, well, this isn't about Jesus opening it. And so someone must be worthy and I don't measure up. And so it says, and I wept much because there is no one found to do it. You get it? In other words, if John believed Jesus was exempt from the angelic question, then John must have believed the job was to fall on an angel or a human being or somebody, himself included, and therefore the tears. Now, if the one on the throne is God, John just never says it, and it's, saying that he has a right hand, but it's anthropomorphically just being described that way. The God of consuming fire and light, not the glorified, resurrected Jesus, and how this could be, I don't know, but if this was God the Father and not his son, then why wouldn't John be wondering why Jesus isn't stepping up? Why isn't he saying, and the Lord Jesus himself isn't stepping up? So it doesn't make sense to me that he would be weeping if it was God the Father on the throne because he would know the Lamb is gonna step up and do it. But if it's Jesus, the Lamb of God on the throne, he's saying there's gotta be someone and there's no one and so I weep. So that doesn't, this kind of thing doesn't make sense to me, maybe it does to you. If the invisible God is on the throne and an angel asks who is worthy to open it, 
and peer into it, why is John crying and saying there would be none? The way I see it, and to me, it's another proof that it was Jesus alone on the throne, is the resurrected Lord, representing the fullness of God, the glorified Christ described in Revelation chapter one, was on that throne. John knew it. He described him as he. He has a right hand. He holds the book. He revealed himself in all his glory, and there he was. He, the resurrected Lord, pulled the scroll out with his right hand. The angel comes and he asks the question, who can open, who is worthy of all the creations to open and read the contents of this book? And John weeps because Jesus is on the throne. And he says, there's none of us are worthy to do it. So he thinks, we're never gonna know the future. We're never gonna have these things unsealed. I'm weeping because I don't, I'm not worthy to even do it. I know I'm not, right? So John sobs. Perhaps also from knowing that this will never be opened. You got that? Now verse five. And one of the elders said to me, so one of the 24 elders wearing a crown representing the church, the, the redeemed of the blood is how the elders are described, says, don't weep. Weep not, John. Don't cry. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book and loose the seven seals thereof. There is one, and the elder says that. So first of all, we might wonder, why is, does one of the elders step up? Which elder of the 24 was it? It doesn't say. But what was it about the elders who represent the redeemed of the church, true church of Christ, giving John this information? We're not given any reason why this elder was picked or why the elder did it, it's conjecture, but perhaps this is to suggest that the church, they were testifying that it is the Lamb of God who will reveal the future. That's all I can come up with in my mind. You might have something different, share it afterward if you can. See, even though they were all in heaven in this vision where this was taking place, they're all wearing their crowns and robes and we have a time problem with chronology here and uh, recapitulation is huge in the book of Revelation. They say something, but it, and then they talk about something that happened way back here. It happens all the time, so it's very difficult to try to put a timeline on these visions. But recapit because recapitulation is always there, it makes it difficult to see, was he talking about this Jesus or that Jesus? Who are these guys wearing crowns? Are they the actual church then? And so it's tough. But it was appropriate, I think, that the 24 elders, one of them at least, would reveal the one worthy to open the seal because they had been redeemed in the blood of the lamb. They were the ones who, they were representing those who were redeemed. In other words, John was caught up in the vision and staring at Jesus glorified on the throne, holding the book, and the angelic question came to him and he was distraught that there was no answer available but the church of the redeemed stepped forward and comforted him with the answer. And the elder said, don't weep, John. There is one who can break those seals and who can unroll the volume and uh, read what is recorded there. Behold, the elder says, the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is how he describes Jesus. The root of David has prevailed to open the book and loose the seven seals thereof, so don't cry. It's the Lamb of God here that is gonna do this. Why does the elder refer to the Lamb of God by saying, behold, the lion? Do you see the interesting par uh, uh, paradox there? He says, behold, the lion of Judah, and it's a lamb. We have the lion and the lamb both represented here and being described, which is Christ and as being both the, the one who's the king and the one who is the sacrifice. So behold, the lion of Judah, he calls him. And what's gonna show up in a second? A lamb, which is the lion of Judah. But he says the lion of, uh, of the tribe of Judah. So for starters, lions, why use this? Why does the one elder say, John, don't weep, the lion of Judah? Is directly tied to Jesus in Genesis. When Jacob blessed his 12 sons in the book of Genesis, he came to Judah and he said in Genesis 49, 9, 
Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from beneath his feet, between his feet, until Shiloh, that's the Messiah, comes, and unto him shall be the gathering of the, of the people be. So what that's saying is, out of you, Judah, the lion's whelp, the, the old lion and, and has stooped down as a crouching lion, out of you is gonna come the Messiah. So the one elder says to John, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and that's all he's doing. He's affirming what was said in Genesis. This is the one who's worthy to open up the scroll. Secondly, lions are kings of the jungle, as we know. The roars are said to shake the foundations of the jungle when a true lion belts it out. And that's emblematic of God's voice thundering through the cosmos and shaking things up with his own mouth. And so it's in connection to the lion being the king and Jesus being the king. But the elder doesn't just say it's just the lion of the tribe of Judah, but says the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Now, Simply seen, all he's doing is connecting Jesus to David. But when you read that, he seems to be saying that Jesus is the root, the Messiah is the root, and David sprung up off of that root. That is not what the Old Testament tells us. Um, if you look in Isaiah 11, chapter one, it says, and there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and a fear of the Lord. So when the elder describes Jesus here as also the root of David, to me, he seems to be saying he's an offshoot or stem of David. He is the offshoot or breaking off a stem, like it says there in Isaiah, a rod shall come forth from the stem of Jesse. So it's saying that Jesus is an offshoot of David because David is not an offshoot of Jesus. The way it reads there, it sounds like that's what he's saying, but he's not. He's just verifying to John, the one that's worthy to open up the scrolls and read the contents is a, of the, uh, a lion of the tribe of Judah, and he sprung from the loins of David. And that's, of course, David's Lord is the Messiah, so we have some application there. But that wouldn't be in harmony with Isaiah if we took that literally. In any case, sorry, throat is really dry. These expressions connect the worthy one to open the seal uh, as a great monarch like David was, uh, that Scripture says that there would be no end to this kingdom upon which David sat on that throne. And so this is the way for the elder to tell John, this is the one, meaning Jesus. So we learn two important things from what this uh, elder says. We learn that the one worthy is from the tribe of Judah. And we learn that the one worthy, to open it up, is from David and he would be one who reigns over David's kingdom forever and ever, all Old Testament prophecy. The elder continues and he says, behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book and loose the seven seals. That in the Greek means he did overcome. Has prevailed, another way to say, he has overcome everything necessary to open up these seven seals and because of his victory. That word has overcome is nakeo, and that's where we get the word Nike for Nike shoes. It's a, someone who's, had, who's conquered and had victory, nakeo. And so, so what is being said there is Jesus has had the nakeo over everything, and he has overcome. He is the one who can open this book, Don't Cry, John. Now we come to verse six, which really brings it around for us. And I beheld, John says, and lo, listen to this. In the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, which we described in chapter four, 
and in the midst of the elders, 24 elders in their crowns, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. So John is witnessing this. There is one on the throne with a right hand holding the book. I would suggest that is the resurrected king of kings, Lord of lords, the one God embodied there in Christ, in Christ Jesus, resurrected. And then the question is asked by the angel, who is worthy? John cries, none are worthy. The elder says, one is worthy. He describes him as of the tribe of Judah and of the stem of Jesse. And then he says, John says, in the midst, that means in the middle of all these things, in the middle here of the throne, in the middle of the 24 elders, of the four beasts that we described, of the angelic hosts that are gonna be described later, in the midst of all that, one stood up, one stood. Uh, in the middle of it. And he says what stood was a lamb as it had been slain. So this was not a lamb in its white woolly coat. Some people say, well, this wasn't a lamb. I would strongly suggest it was a lamb. The word for lamb is arneon, and that is what is used there. That Jesus, I believe, is on the one throne, and a lamb actually symbolically stands up in the midst of all of this happening and looks as if it has been slaughtered. That's how he says, stood as it had been slain, probably covered in blood. And I think it was an actual animal. Of course, we know that this is symbolic representation of Jesus who throughout scripture is called the Lamb of God. The word translates slain as fadzo and it means maimed, slaughtered, violently butchered. So what John says is the angel asked the question, who can open it? Neither any creature, not man, no creature under heaven or earth can open up this thing. He begins to weep because none can. And in the midst of all of it, he sees a lamb stand as if it had been slaughtered. And uh, it was Nikeo. It had, was worthy to do what the angel requested. So I maintain that the glorified Jesus, still on the throne in his resurrected gloriness, holding the scroll, waiting for it to be taken from his right hand, and John has seen a representation of him through an animal that had been slaughtered, through an animal in this vision uh, for the sins of the world. Lambs are symbolic of innocence in scripture, and they're also symbolic of sacrifice. And so John was seeing the reason why the Lion of Judah and the Root of David was worthy. He was innocent, he was sacrificed, he was victorious over all his enemies and he had subdued them completely. Going all the way back to Isaiah, we read a messianic passage in Isaiah 53. You all recognize it. Describing Jesus, it says prophetically, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. This is Christ going into his passion and how he was like a lamb to the slaughter. Of course, remember John the Baptist, when he sees the Messiah, he says the next day John sees Jesus coming to him and says, behold, the lamb of God, uh, which takes away the sin of the world. Well, John here is looking at a picture of the one worthy. So this lamb is post death and resurrection. This lamb is representation of the one worthy to open up the seven seals, which will introduce his second coming to the world. And so it, this lamb has been as if it were sacrificed, but it, this lamb also is unusual because John says, and it had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. So this slaughtered lamb now, bloody, comes up as the answer to the angel's request, and it's got seven eyes and seven horns, and it's the one worthy to take the book. Obviously symbolic of Christ. If you look in scripture, horns, and we're, and we're gonna read about them more in Revelation, they are emblematic of power. 
when there's a horn on the head of a bean, it has the ability to ram things and push things around. It has the power. So when we read about something with two horns, we're talking about a, a unicorn or, or two horns, or that's a powerful beast, right? All the way back in Deuteronomy 33, 17, it says, his glory is like the firstlings of a flock and his horns are like the horns of unicorns. With them he shall push the people together to the ends of the earth and the tens of thousands of Ephraim and the tens of thousands of Manasseh. So horns there, again, emblematic of an ability to have power and to move things. In 1 Kings 22:11, 11, it says that Zedekiah, the son of Chenaah, made him horns of iron. And the Lord said, with these thou shalt push the Syrians until you have consumed them. So as we read through Revelation and we read about horns, they're emblematic of power. And this lamb had seven of them. So that means he had all power because seven is the complete number in scripture. So seven coming out of this lamb's head, even though he's been bloodied, he is the powerful one. Don't mess with this lamb, right? So, um, and you know, I'll just give you one more. In Daniel chapter seven, verse 24, it says, and this is one that everyone talks about, and the 10 horns out of this kingdom are the 10 kings that shall rise. Kings have power. So they're called horns, something with power, kings, and they have the ability to move and push and conquer. So the seven horns on the butchered lamb present the one with the kingly nature, full of power, seven of them, the complete power. Pretty darn awe-inspiring. You think about this scene. John is weeping. There's no one worthy. Jesus is on the throne. The angel says, who's worthy to open the scroll in his right hand? And suddenly this lamb stands up in his vision in the midst of the 24 elders, the angels, and the beasts, and it's bloody. I think it's an actual lamb. And it has seven horns coming out of its head. And then it also has seven eyes all on some, it doesn't, he doesn't tell us where the horns or the, but it must be on his head, I guess, or where the eyes are. So the eyes, the horns are, he's completely powerful. And the eyes are, he has the ability to know all things. He's all seen. He's everywhere. He gets it all. He understands everything. Simply an amazing symbolic representation of Christ. I mean, we are blessed with a symbolic representation of who Christ is post-death and resurrection here in this because he was, we know he's meek, he's bloody, but he has full power and he has complete understanding, omniscience, omnipresence, glorified, completely God, uh, amazing. So the angel calls for this one to open the seal and we get a representation not only of why the lamb is worthy for the task, because he's bloodied and butchered and he took on the sins of the world. But we also see how powerful this beaten creature is among all creatures. He is able to open the book. He has seven horns. He has seven eyes. And we all, uh, you know, in scripture, we've, well, maybe not in scripture, we talk about the all-seeing eye. It's on our, top of the pyramid of our dollars. And the, and the eye is symbolic of seeing everything. Well, this lamb has the seven, and it's on a slaughtered lamb. And I would suggest, my interpretation of this is, that lamb went through everything, so he understands everything, and he's capable of seeing all things, and nothing escapes his uh, scrutinous eye, eyes. He, that, those seven eyes are really, really important. He has all intelligence, all knowledge, all scope, all perspective of humans because of what he did as the Lamb of God. So, my friends, we worship one God, one God. This God loved us so much that he sent himself, his words, and his word became flesh, dwelt among us, suffered for the sins of the world, overcame the grave, and then all things. And the one God reigning on his throne in the resurrected flesh of the only begotten Son, fully empowered, fully capable of knowing each and every human being has taken the position as judge of all things. John does not tell us how these horns and these eyes were arranged. Uh, I'd like to draw it sometime or put it in acrylic. I think it'd be really unique. But uh, quickly back to the seven eyes. They are also mentioned in the New Testament, seven eyes. 
in, just to give you a basis, in 2 Chronicles 16.9, it says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth and show himself strong in the behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward him. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. But it's Zechariah 3.9 where we get the tie-in of Jesus to seven eyes. Because we're always going to use scripture to interpret scripture. And so to interpret Revelation and this sudden vision that John has of seven eyes, we find a support for that in Zechariah 3.9 where it says, For behold, the stone... We know Jesus is the rock of the Old Testament. The stone that I have laid before Joshua, one stone upon, upon one stone shall be seven eyes. This is an Old Testament picture of what John is actually seeing in this revelation right now. John tells us what those seven eyes represent. He says, they are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. So again, seven being the complete number, these, this is God sending forth the spirit or spirits into all the earth and they are represented by those seven eyes. We are talking about spiritual things represented through symbolic uh, vision that John is experiencing. The seven spirits, again, are emblematic of the full capacity of the spirit of Christ, which is synonymous. The spirit of Christ and the Holy Spirit are synonymous in scripture. And to oversee understand all things, as I've said. So the seven eyes are symbols for the seven spirits, which are symbols for omniscience, omnipresence, uh, which are all present in or on that slain lamb standing there in the middle. We've talked about this, I think, before. There's a debate where people say, God is in all things. God is in all things. And I think that's a misnomer. I think we can say we, all things are in God. And that might be emblematic of the seven spirits going out to the whole earth and all things are in him. And that's how those seven eyes are represented as having all knowledge. Then speaking of the butchered lamb, we read at verse seven. Ready? And almost done. And he came, the, the butchered lamb, and took the book out of the right hand of him, again, just him, that sat upon the throne. Because of the way this is written, many believe that this is not a lamb, but Jesus himself. For how would a lamb take the book out of the right hand of him that sat on the throne? But if it were Jesus, I think John would have said, and Jesus reached and took the right hand out of God, the right, right hand presence, uh, but that's not what we get. John was a witness to Jesus' resurrection and trial. He could have easily identified him as the bloodied one who now is representing seven horns and seven eyes walking toward the throne of God and taking it. And almost everybody who interprets this passage says, this was Jesus. He's the lamb of God. It's not really a lamb. But one, John uses the term arneon to say it was a lamb as if it had been slain with horns and seven eyes I don't think Jesus, the man, was there with seven eyes and seven horns coming out of his head. I think an animal has those. And so you have to decide what you think about that. But how does a lamb take a book or a scroll from the right hand of a, of a being? And there have been several postulations, serious ones, by very serious scholars. One say that it was Jesus' body and the head of a lamb. And, and we don't, John doesn't tell us that, but that's how they justify his ability to take the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. Another view says that the lamb changed from being a butchered, slaughtered lamb to being Christ and proceeding forward to take the scroll. But John doesn't say that happens either. All he says is the lamb, he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat on the throne. So here's my view. Take it for what it's worth. But John doesn't tell us how the lamb took the scroll. No details at all. But let me ask you something. How would an animal take something from the, ha the right hand of a human or a resurrected human or a glorified human or Jesus sitting on a throne? How would a lamb take something from uh, God the Father with the book hovering? 
How does the lamb do it? He does it with his mouth. He walks up, the lamb comes up and takes it with his mouth. That's how an animal would do it. That's how a dog would do it. And if an animal is going to do it, he's not going to try to hoof it. So I think he would take it with his mouth. And Jeremiah 15, 16 and Ezekiel give us some support. Listen to this. Jeremiah 15, 16 says, The words were found and I did eat them. And thy word was a joy to me and rejoicing in my heart, for I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. So we have the idea of taking the words and eating them in scripture. That's known throughout biblical history. In Ezekiel, we hear, moreover, he said to me, son of man, eat that thou findest, eat this roll and go and speak to the house of Israel. Eat these words and then go speak them to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he caused me to eat the roll. And he said unto me, son of man, cause thy belly to eat and fill thy bowels with the roll that I give thee. And then I did eat it and it, and it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. John doesn't tell us the lamb ate the scroll, but it is within biblical harmony to believe that this lamb, Arneon, slaughtered, was the one symbolic, seven horns, seven eyes, going forth to that throne and taking out of the right hand that scroll with his mouth. And if, you, if we had the time, we could go in and talk about words and mouth and everything and how it relates. I'm not gonna, but I would just suggest to you that is how the lamb took that scroll. And that is what occurred, though John doesn't tell us. We'll stop there. Questions, comments. Would anyone like to demonstrate for us the way the lamb would take the scroll? Adam? <laughs> All right. Go, Brother Adam. Well, I noticed one thing you said earlier was that uh, I, I liked how you, when you were praying, you said that uh, we as, as uh, you know, that we aren't, aren't us, us as we're not worthy and it's Jesus that's worthy. Uh-huh. And it came to mind that none of us can ever be worthy like, like Jesus because if we become worthy, then we're, you know, we're going to take his place and we can't do that. It's Amen. All through him, right? Great insight. Very good, yeah, Adam Diamond. It's just like the same thing, like, you know, you, you know, like the other religions tell you, oh, you can become God and all that. And there's no way we can because if we would, then it basically supersedes the Savior, so. Amen. Thank you again, Brother Adam. Anybody else? Johnny. This is meat. So me and so me and Mary are back there talking, and the book of life is basically the Father, because he's holding the Father, he's with the Father, he's in the bosom of the Father, and the book represents words, and Jesus says, "My words are spirit." So he creates every word for us, and he's the only one that has the power to create revelation in our lives. So it's something to think about. Definitely. Thank you for sharing that, John. Those sharing mean, means a lot. Others? Okay. Really quick, we're going to have a prayer on this. My, my wife just wrote my dad's name. Why would she write my dad's name? My dad is 85 years old, and uh, he and I have been having conversations for years about God. He has always maintained that he is an atheist or doesn't really believe in any of it. And... Um, and I just had a conversation with him on the phone, and he said, you know what? I'm really starting to think a lot about God. And I'm really starting to, to wonder about him. And I don't believe that the way I'm starting to see this is he doesn't really want to control us. He kind of loves us, and he gave us this life, and we make what we make of it. And he's not out there just controlling us. He's given us this life to do what we're going to do with it. I said, Dad, I, I agree with you 100%. And, uh, and he uh, said, you know, 90% of me doesn't like everything that is told about God. And I said, well, I agree with you there too. And he said, but 10% of me says, yeah, I think I'm getting it. 
I'm like, wow, this has been, this has been decades of talk with the old man. So I'm gonna include him on the prayer list. Keep him in mind, call him Fast Eddie. He's 85 years old and uh, he's coming around by virtue of God and his Holy Spirit. Lord, oh, oh Betty? Uh, <laughs> churches give God a bad rap, man. Yeah, they do. They really do. Thanks, Betty Joe. All right, let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you for your word and the things that we're pulling from Revelation. It's tough to fully get it. Grateful for the comments that have been made, Adam and John, Stephen, and the insights that are brought forward and for the contents of our heart that are righteous, given us by you and your spirit. We pray we'll, we'll pursue, uh, pursue this week uh, full of your spirit, seeking you, your will, and your ways, not our own. We pray that we will... Uh, be able to die to the things that are not of you and realize that you are there helping us to do that. We pray that you'll help those who are uh, struggling and with whatever it might be. We especially pray for the Wangsgard family. They had services for their uh, wife and mother yesterday and, and daughter, and we just pray that you'll bless them with your spirit, reassurance, and transformation as they move forward to meeting with Heidi again. We pray for my dad, Ed, and... Uh, just pray that your spirit will, as he's opened this window in his heart, finally, that your spirit will pour in and you will radically change uh, his views relative to who you are and to relative to who he is before you, Lord. We pray for that and, and know that you are working. We pray for Robert in leading Darren to Christ so that Darren can experience the true love of Jesus. And we pray for uh, all those whose names aren't on here, people who don't know you completely yet people who are seeking the light, but they don't have it yet. We pray that you will let it shine. Maybe today, especially as it's Mother's Day and families will be united with people, perhaps, that aren't necessarily sold out for you by your spirit. Well, use us. Let us be a shining light of love and uh, keep the contention from our mouths. We pray for anybody whose names haven't been mentioned, Lord, that need it and love you and seek you in Jesus' name. Amen. That which is born.